I'll tell you, joy is the key to a proper attitude in life. And brethren, we're all going to face all kinds of trials and struggles. It's not all a picnic. It's not all a, it's not all a hallelujah shouting match. I know that, friend. But joy is not created by possessions. Joy is not created by positions. Joy is created by a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And a good dose of holy joy would do us all well. And I'm not talking about silly putty religion here, brother. I'm talking about something that comes from being rightly related to God and being in the presence of God. I believe of all the people alive on planet Earth today, we should not be wringing our hands and worrying about the future and worrying about the end of the world and worrying about this and worrying about that. I believe of all the people in the world, we should have the joy of God in these latter days unparalleled to the rest of our society. Happy Sunday to everybody. Uh, bring your greetings. Uh, open your Bibles to Philippians. We're going to be in uh, this book for today. We started a series last week uh, in this New Testament book written by the Apostle Paul. We're calling it Reasons for Joy. And as we get into this series a little bit more, it will become intuitive to you why uh, we're calling it Reasons for Joy. Firstly, that word or derivations of the word joy is repeated over a hundred times in this book. And so it is a major theme of themes in the book. More importantly, and this came out last week, Paul is, is writing from imprisonment, probably in Rome. Uh, commentators say he's either in Ephesus or Rome, most would side with Rome, and he's awaiting adjudication uh, from Caesar about the remainder of his life. Of course, he's in prison just for doing what God has commissioned him to do, preaching the gospel. And... Uh, and so we're going to be in Philippians 1, looking at the introduction to this letter, verses 1 through 11. Let's read these out loud together. If you don't have a Bible, there's one down the center aisle. Grab it, look in the table of contents and find Philippians. And if you like to cheat, you can look at the words on the screen. Let's read these out loud together. Paul and Timothy, saints of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for really a beautiful day. Uh, I love the fall. Fall reminds us of your creativity, but uh, Lord, today, uh, thank you for this beautiful weather you're, you're giving us. Lord, I'm, I'm mindful that just because the weather is good doesn't mean that we're good. Perhaps some have come in 
not even recognizing the beauty of this earth, perhaps circumstances or situations in their life or those that they know um, just tanks the, the beauty of, of anything that they see. God, would you come and meet us all where we are today? I'm going to say a lot of words, and I pray that uh, on top of that, God, the Holy Spirit would speak to us and, uh, and really give us what we need. Uh, Lord, uh, cause the Holy Spirit uh, as if he were to, to rain down through the ventilation system and remind us that we're in the presence of God. May these words lift off the page as if uh, Paul the Apostle is speaking to us uh, as friends of his about Jesus. And, uh, and Lord, would you, by your gospel, through the Holy Spirit, incline us, draw us near to the Lord, to Jesus, and, and change us. And I pray that in his great name. Amen. And amen. So, pretty simple task today. We are looking at the introduction to this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi is a church that Paul founded. He started it. Uh, as part of his second missionary journey. We learned that last week, and if you want to get some background on this book of the Bible, you have to go to the, the, the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 15 and 16. And I can't go to all the detail uh, today, but uh, Paul is in the midst of a journey, and he encounters some people. He's trying to go to, to, to Asia and Bithynia, and he's diverted to Macedonia and ends up in Philippi, he meets some individuals, and Paul, doing what Paul does best, uh, preaches the gospel uh, by the Holy Spirit, brings people to faith, and starts a church, this church at Philippi. And so the occasion of the letter is 10 years in the future. So he's 10 years removed from the, the, t- the time that he initially met them. He had been not only uh, the founder of the church, but had been in their lives on and off. He had visited one other time and really had kept, uh, kept in, in close contact with this particular church, as he does with several of his churches. And he's writing to thank them, to thank them for uh, who they've been in his life and for the help that they've given him in his mission to go around the Roman province and... Uh, and, uh, and preach the gospel. Uh, Philippi is an ancient city. Uh, its, 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 its founding was 400 years prior to Jesus uh, coming on the earth, about 368 uh, BC. Uh, it was founded by Philip II, who is the, uh, the father of Alexander the Great. Uh, it became a Roman, Roman province as they were conquering the world about 200 uh, years before Jesus came on the scenes. And so, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a historic city in many rights. Uh, it was the prototypical Roman city, filled with people who, uh, really on the outskirts of Rome, had served Rome, and it would have had the semblance, uh, the semblances of, 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 of being in Rome itself. And so uh, with that, uh, what we're looking at is the introduction of the letter. Think about this as we're reading through the text today. Think about yourself and all those things that you would say if you were right, sitting down, writing a, a few lines, if we did that today. But if you were going to write a letter to people that you know, that you were fond of, uh, what are some of the things that you would say? Uh, particularly, uh, there's three big ideas in this text. There's a simple greeting, not, to, not so simple as we go through it, you'll find out. Paul's description of his thankfulness, and then he, a, a prayer. He's going to pray for them in the midst of, of writing. 
Uh, I don't know how you, what you think about communication, but in terms of how we introduce ourselves, it's a, it's a really important part of how we communicate with, with other people. Think of what you might say the first time you greet some, uh, someone uh, that you're meeting for the, for the first time. Uh, if you're in a professional setting, you might introduce yourself by uh, giving your title or, or your credential. If you're in the public service, then you might lead with uh, your uniform or your badge. Think about police officers that, that are driving around, FBI agents that might be investigating, come to your door, knock on it. Uh, uh, so ladies driving around the street, she's speeding. 55 and 35, police officer, light comes on, pulls her over. He's got a uniform on. He's going to, you know, you see the badge. I'm officer so-and-so. Ma'am, do you know you're going 55 and 35? And, you know, we make all the excuses of why we're doing that. I got children at home by themselves. The stove is on, all that kind of thing. Uh, if you're in the military, which many of you are, uh, I mean, how do, you, how do you introduce yourself? A lot of times we introduce, I mean, we, we lead with a, a salute and the rank that's on our clothing. How we introduce ourselves, of course, depends on the context that we're in. If I'm hanging with the fellas, then I'm just, I'm Jeff, right? Meeting the guy for the first time. My name is Jeff. I'm, if I'm in a professional pastoral setting, I might be, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Jeff, my I'm pastor of, of the Transit Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Think of all those ways that you might do that. But when we introduce ourselves to people, we're really revealing the most vital uh, or, or pertinent information for the particular context. Nick was doing announcements today. Think, of, think if, if Pastor Nick Mudrizo had come up and said, hey, what's up, Transit Church? Good morning. Good to see everybody. I'm Kelsey's dad. Now, for many of us in here, because we've gotten to know him, and we, I mean, we like Nick, it would have been okay. And we actually know Kelsey, so that makes sense to us. But for those who are, don't know Nick so well, don't know that he has a daughter named Kelsey, and our guest, it would have been like, you know what, that bald head guy was kind of cool. I like what he was saying. The announcements were like, those are, those are good announcements. But, I mean, that was a kind of a, a weird way to introduce yourself. I mean, who is Kelsey? And so when we introduce ourselves, Kelsey's a beautiful little one-and-a-half-year-old girl. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Nick. And so when we introduce ourselves, we typically give the most relevant credential, given the context. And that really gives us a, a sense of what Paul is doing in this text here. He has given the most relevant information to, uh, to his readers about himself. And, and it's interesting the, the things that Paul does. You know, if you've read any of Paul's letters in the Bible, in the New Testament, Paul could have used a lot of different titles or a lot of different information about himself. He could have said he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, apostle not sent from men, but sent from God to, to, to sort of put forth the authority that he had in the church, like he did to the, the, the church at Galatia. He, I mean, he wrote a, kind of a rebuke to them, uh, and he, he introduces himself right from the back. I'm, I'm an apostle, not from men, but from God, because they had, this church had allowed themselves to, to, uh, to, to adhere to heresy from some people that came in trying to assert their authority over them. He could have introduced himself as a prisoner of Christ like he did at the, to the letter to Philemon. Philemon being written to this particular guy about another guy, Onesimus, who had been a prisoner. Paul could have just said his name like he did to, uh, for the church at Thessalonica. 
But here he does something different. He doesn't give those kinds of credentials. And, and here's why. It's because of the context. He's writing a letter to his friends. I mean, what do you say to when you're writing a letter to people that I mean, you know their names and you're, uh, they're familial, uh, familiar to you and also familial? He knew some of them by name and he names some of them in the book. And in, in this letter, he's reaffirming them of the ties that they've had and of uh, of his concern for them and for their well-being. Interestingly, he he talks a little bit theologically in the book, but he doesn't. I mean, he he doesn't have a hammer out, and he's not rebuking them, hitting them over the head with any uh, lofty doctrinal matters or even practical ministry uh, things that they of how they're supposed to conduct themselves. This letter is filled with ideas of thankfulness, of submission, and self-sacrifice. And, and Paul is encouraging the Philippian believers to really imitate him as he imitates Christ. We'll see that in chapter 3 in a few weeks. And so, of all the things that he could have, all the ways, all the titles, I mean, all the descriptions he could have used of himself to introduce himself to his friends, the Philippians, this one is interesting. He calls himself a servant. A servant. Actually, it's, it's a little different than that. He actually calls himself a slave. And not only himself, he's including Timothy in this uh, because Timothy helped him apparently write the letter. The Greek word used for servant there is the word doulos, which really means slave. And so right off the bat, here's what Paul is, is, is conveying to these people that he knows. It's kind of, kind of counterintuitive. He's saying, whom Jesus saves, Jesus enslaves. Whom Jesus saves, Jesus enslaves. In slaves. If you're not a Christian, that sounds like crazy, right? It doesn't sound quite right. It sounds like, so you're, you're offering me some kind of salvation from something, but you're not going to allow me to live in the, in the autonomy or freedom that I think I deserve. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound, it sounds kind of hard and definitely not, not inviting. But that's what he's, he's saying. Here's the truth that Paul's trying to convey, and this is for everybody. He's saying, Everybody is enslaved to something. The master you serve might be success or money or what your money can buy. Some of us in this room might be enslaved uh, or you might make a lord your affection or just the need for romance. Some of us are enslaved to a good reputation or getting respect. We just think we deserve respect. Perhaps you're enslaved by other people's opinions. You're terrified if, if anybody would have uh, the wrong perspective of you and reject you because of that perspective. Or maybe you're just haunted by the unpleasant thought that you would have to live life alone. And so I think whether any of us would want to admit it, Paul's right. Every, every plan that we have, every action, we're either trying to please someone, to, uh, to, to appease someone, so that we can get something out of them that affirms us, or we're trying to avoid pain. And also, oftentimes, those things are the things that we, that we make lord over us, that we make our master, that we become enslaved to. And, and right off the bat, here's what Paul is saying. Because all of us are going to make a slave of something, he's commending to us every master other than Jesus is going to ultimately disappoint you. Every master other than Jesus is going to ultimately exploit or disappoint you in, this, in, the, in the end. And so in this letter, he's purposely choosing words to show his friends at Philippi what joyful slavery looks like. Those two words don't sound like they go together, do they? 
He's showing them what joyful slavery looks like, and he's going to show them that up close and personal. And that really is what he's doing in this, in this greeting. So two other things we see right here off the bat. Uh, look at verse 1. To all the saints in, in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. First, the word saint. The word saint can be confusing. We think of the word saint. We think of stained glass windows and somebody that has a halo around their head, and they're like able to float above the rest of us. And, of course, that's kind of a, a tainted perspective of, uh, of the word saint. The word saint uh, strictly means someone who is set apart. Paul is calling the whole church saint here in this, in this text. Someone that's a saint is someone who's not just set apart. They are granted access to God's holy presence. Think Moses in, uh, in the beginning of Exodus. Exodus 3, Moses sees a burning bush and God allows him to come near, speaks out of it, and then he tells Moses, all right, take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. Later on, this same Moses is, is given this grand details of, of a tent, of a tabernacle that would in-house God's presence. And God allows Moses and his sidekick Joshua to come into, uh, into that, that tent as God's presence is filling this, uh, this, this space. Think of Isaiah. Isaiah in chapter 6. Isaiah is one of the foremost prophets in the, in the Old Testament that says to us a lot about the coming of Jesus. And in the sixth chapter, Isaiah says, uh, I saw on the day Uzziah died, King Uzziah, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. He's talking about the presence of a holy God coming and he's seeing this vision. And he says there was a cherubim that accompanied this, this vision and it had six wings, two to cover its face, two to cover its body, and with two it, it flew. And so these are two examples in the Bible of, of people, just mere people like you and I, that God allowed to have access to his holy presence. And that's what we think about when we think about saints, right? But, but here's, here's the deal. The Bible also says that a saint is someone who is not necessarily that pure and, and also defiled by sin. I mean, that's, that's what the Bible says about saints. It's not just someone who's on a stained glass window and has a halo. It's, it's really people like you and like me. All Christians are saints. But here's the thing. We're only saints because we're in Christ. And that's the next thing he says. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. This is one of Paul's favorite, favorite sayings. In Christ. He says these two words or derivations of them at least a hundred times in most of his writings. And here's what he means. It speaks of our union with Christ. I mean, highly theological, technical term uh, in the simplicity of, of, of two words. To be in Christ, um, it doesn't mean that like you're inside of, of Jesus. It's not like being clothes inside of a closet or tools inside of a toolbox. It means that uh, almost like the, the picture of uh, the, the limb or a branch of a tree being united with that tree, not supposed to be separated. It's that, it's that kind of thing. You're united, you're united with, with Christ. And in Christ really is the distinctive phrase that the Bible gives for those of us who follow Jesus. This is, this is the brand of those of us who are, are Christians, little Christ. I think more than that, positionally, it's, it's this. It's all that we can attribute to Christ is attributed to me. His, his kindness, his goodness, his beauty, his honesty, his truth. 
although I'm not always all those things, I get, the, I get those things attributed to me because I, I'm an appendage of, of Christ. I'm, I'm united to him by salvation through the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The, all, the old is gone. Everything has become new. And lastly, he says, with overseers and deacons, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with overseers and deacons. And when I see those two words, this is what it reminds me of. This is a mature church because this is speaking of ecclesiology. It's speaking of the doctrine of the church, of how they're governed. You come to the, new, uh, the membership class, we're going to talk about some of these things, how the church is structured, how it's governed. Um, and overseer is the Greek word episkopos, which means bishop or, or elder. An elder is someone, uh, I mean, generally senior, with, with a little bit of senior, seniority and age. We don't have a lot of those people in, our, in this room right now. I mean, I'm like one of the oldest people here, right? But, but elder doesn't simply mean seniority of age. It, it primarily means uh, um, you've got a little wisdom to you. And so bishop is used to describe uh, the ministry that an, uh, an elder exercises. He oversees and leads fellow Christians. We're a church that has elders. Okay? Nick and I are the, the, the principal elders of the church. We, John Scott was, uh, was our other. The army took him away, chaplain in the army. And then we've got three or four guys that are training to be elders. And the task of an elder is really to be called of God to oversee and lead other Christians so that you know, they're, they're shepherded to, to, to be disciples of Jesus, to follow him and serve him more. Paul also says that, uh, he also mentions deacons. And a deacon means someone who serves. The task of deacon in the New Testament isn't clearly articulated. We don't know a lot about what the deacons, uh, deacons did. We read a little bit about them in Acts chapter 6 and 7. But for the most part, I mean, it's... Uh, A deacon is someone that serves the leadership of the church, but more importantly, serves the church in many of its varied functions. And so our church has elders. Our church also has deacons. We don't call them deacons, but we have deacons. And our deacons are, if you ever heard me talk about, for membership class, I'm going to talk about this too, uh, the departments of our church. We have five, you know, our church is organized really in five departments, worship, guest services, children's ministry, uh, uh, sound and media, and I'm leaving one out. I don't, yes, I don't know what the other one is. Logistics, all right? And the people that lead those, uh, you know, we look at the qualifications of Scripture, First Timothy 3, uh, that, that says what a, a deacon's qualifications are supposed to be, and, uh, and, you know, we sort of look for those kind of people to fulfill those, those duties. And primarily, they're the ones that serve our church to make church happen. Elders, and deacons. And lastly, Paul closes this greeting by saying uh, he wishes them grace and peace. Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those seem like simple words. It seems like he, he might just be saying that as filler to get to whatever he's going to say next. But these really are um, important words. Paul is articulating the divine message that God has given him. And that message the Bible calls the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he, he enters that, the, the idea of the gospel, with the word grace. Grace is the source of your salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 2 8, um, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, it's, it's the gift of God, so that no one can boast. 
And so grace is, is God's unmerited favor. Unmerited. You, he's going to give you favor that you don't deserve. Grace is God giving us, irrespective of uh, any human merit or works, good or bad, stuff that we don't deserve. Grace is God's loving kindness to those who are undeserving. And he continues, the result of our salvation is peace. Peace with God. You're reconciled to God, who the Bible says, before you come to faith in Jesus, you are an enemy of, of God by not following his laws. But not just peace with God, you gain peace within, and hopefully you gain peace with other men. And he finishes that off by saying, grace and peace flow not from any of us. It's, it's not this arbitrary thing that just comes to you because you want it to. He says, grace and peace rightly come from God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, together. Trinitarian blessing. So that's his greeting. The next thing Paul talks about is his thanksgiving. Look at verse, uh, verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of yours, since, uh, since prayer of, of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this first day until now. Paul is talking about thanksgiving and prayer almost intertwined so that it's hard to discern when he stops flowing out of giving thanks and talking about like joy and delight in the Philippian church, and then he starts praying for them for just so just for the ease of us talking about it. I'm going to separate them. So this next point is just really about about Thanksgiving. And first of all, I'd like you to, to to note in the text, he's he's really giving us uh, a picture of the relationship between the pastor of a local fellowship and the congregation. I mean that's that's what Paul is doing. So we're not just getting a sense of Paul the apostle. Paul, this great man of faith who did all these miracles and wonderful things for God and wrote all these words uh, that, are, uh, that are captured for us as the, the authoritative scripture, he's coming across as a, a shepherd to an individual particular group of people. And I would say that's, that's fairly important for the life of, of any church. Now, obviously, I'm the founder, I'm the church planner of this church, and so I think that's a big point, probably bigger than most of y'all think it. But it's, it's an important thing. And it's also important because with this church, because we don't see that in all the churches that Paul, Paul started. If you would go to some of the other letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, we don't necessarily see a rosy relationship between Paul and some of these other churches. Again, think the church at Galatia. Paul has some kind words for them at the beginning, but then he begins on a series of 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 corrections about doctrinal practices that they had adhered to, and really rebukes on errors that they were letting seep into to their church. If you've read the church, uh, the, the book of Corinthians, um, I mean, very simply, that was a messed up church. They had some, some very strange practices spiritually. They had some very wrong things, some sexual things going on in it, Paul had very strong words for them in both of the letters that he wrote to them. And so, I mean, not so with the church at Philippi. He had a very close relationship with this church, so much so that his language is full of joy and rejoicing. So the question we need to be asking constantly as we're reading is, I mean, what was he so thankful about? And really, it's a couple things. And he says them uh, primarily in the text. Firstly, he was thankful for the memory of them. Have you ever sat down to write a letter? How many of y'all have never written a letter? I mean, seriously, in the, in the advent of technology. All right, we're good to go. I mean, seriously, writing down, so you're sitting down to write a letter to someone that you know that you're fond of, that's been in your life, although probably, maybe not uh, 
presently in your life, and just the thought of them brought a sense of joy and delight to you. That, that's what's happening with Paul as he's sitting down to write the church at Philippi. Note the words, all and every. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. That's, I mean, that's the same word. All and every is the same word every time he's saying it. And here's, here's a paraphrase of, of how I, I, I think Paul is, is saying this to them. I'm thankful for every memory. I'm thankful for every moment and every mention for every member of, of this group of people. I mean, he was, he was encouraging them with the feelings that God had given him for them and expressing them and as, as good a words as he could come up with. And here's the thing. I think this is a great sentiment to have, but this is oh so hard to do. I mean, you can have nice thoughts about people, but actually live. I mean, you can write it on paper, make somebody feel good. Oh, they love me. But living that stuff out is, is hard, right? Why? Because it's hard enough to, to like the people that you're around most of the time. It, it really, it is. You don't have to agree with me. I think this is doubly so for Paul. Think about Paul. Paul was trained as a Pharisee, and so he was, uh, he was brought up in the most strict um, religious organ, uh, 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 organization that was around at that time. He was a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said of himself that, I mean, he, he would have been a religious extremist, so much so that uh, when Jesus met him, he was going on a road to Damascus intending to persecute Christians so that he could bring them back to jail and, and probably oversee their, their murder. And so this is Paul coming from that strict, exclusive background, and he's loving and articulating the joy that he felt for people that only a couple years prior to that, well, probably a, a, a decade prior to that, um, he wouldn't have had nothing to do. And I would tell you, only the Holy Spirit of God could have done that in him. And so he was thankful for the memory of them. He was also thankful for their partnership. Look at verse 5. Because of your joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from this first day until now, he says. Partnership is the Greek word koinonia. We translate it communication, um, communion rather, participation, or fellowship. And here's specifically what Paul was getting at. Firstly, he's saying their partnership is about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Uh, they were sharing, they were willing to share in Paul's striving for faith of the gospel, verse 27. They shared in Paul's suffering, seeing suffering as, as a privilege, if you can ever think of that, verse 29. They wanted to share in Paul's troubles and committed themselves to pray in that regard, verse 19. And, and here's, what the, here's what he is conveying to us about the gospel. The gospel does a couple of things. It draws us in close fellowship with Jesus. But here's what the gospel also does. It draws us into closer fellowship with each other. And if you don't see that happening in your life, then the gospel is not working like it's supposed to, supposed to work. It draws them closer to Jesus himself, but also draws them nearer to each other. So our commitment to Jesus always implies a commitment to other people. So partnership about, first about the gospel, their partnership was not just material, it was personal. Focus on the word fellowship. 
Fellowship for us as Christians all, is oftentimes just hanging out. We're drinking good food, drinking good drink, eating good food. We're having good conversation, right? That's fellowship for us. Paul's going a little bit deeper here. He's saying fellowship involved more than just us getting together, having a good time. The Philippians actually dug deep into their pockets and they pulled out some of their resources. I got a penny. Check it out. I dug in my resources. Whatever it was, they dug deep into what God had blessed them with and they were willing to share it with Paul so that he could do that very thing that God had called them to. It was monetary. They even sent a person. They sent a guy named Epaphroditus that we'll learn about in chapter four to aid Paul when he was in prison. So their partnership was about the gospel. It wasn't just material. It was personal. They had to give some things up in terms of their resources that they would not be able to use anymore. Thirdly, their partnership was ongoing. Note the the words in verse five, from this first day until now. And so they had remained faithful to Paul from the first day that Paul and Silas and, and Timothy had met them 10 years, you know, 10 years through their relationship together until this present day. And, and he's thanking them for that. They supported him day in and day out as they had opportunity and the resources to do so. And I think here's what this means for us as, as a church. Being a Christian firstly means entering into partnership with, with other people, with other Christians, sharing in the work of Christ. And when you come to our membership class, we're going to talk about that, that our membership is, is a covenant, but it's also a partnership. And I use this, I mean, these very verses that says you identify with our vision and our mission and our values, and you're willing to not just fellowship with us, the nice, you know, nice fun thing to do as Christians, but that as God of, you know, makes it, make, gives you the opportunity and the resources that you are willing to use your resources to partner with us in all those ways that we're trying to change you know, our community here. That's, that's what Paul is calling us to. And, and here's the thing. There's no such thing as an isolated Christian. There's no such thing as you, yourself, and you with all your stuff and still calling yourself a Christian. As we're drawn to Jesus, he is drawing us to others. And it's a hard statement from, from many of you, perhaps. If there's no giving, if there's no caring, if there's no loving, if there's no sharing, there is no true fellowship. And so here's my question for you, Transit Church. Where are you in fellowship? Where are you a fellow partaker of the gospel with other people. That word partaker of me is koinonia. Where are you partnering with other Christians for the, the sake of the gospel? So he was thankful for the memory of them. He was thankful for their partnership. Lastly, he was thankful for the work of God that he saw in them. And, he, he, and here's the thing, verse 6, we talked about this last week. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul was confident not in all the good things he saw going on in the, uh, the, the church uh, at Philippi. He was confident in God. So that's the, the, the dominant thought to keep in your mind. But he, he, he really was confident in just the lifelong transformation that he saw in these believers. And it, that, it had their origin in God. He says, God began a good work 
in them. And if God began it, he's going to complete it. Think about all the, all the things that you recognize if you're a Christian that God has started in you. And if you can't recognize it, ask your, ask your spouse or someone that's close to you. I know my wife back there is thinking, Lord, yes, you've started some good things in Jeff. And I'm going to stand on the promise that if you started it, you got to finish it. You're going to complete it. So let's, Lord, when are you going to start completing some stuff in Jeff? And she's amening me right now. Perhaps you think like that, right? I mean, I think like that about myself. Lord, I, I recognize you've started some good things in me. It's your work. I know I could, I know it wouldn't be possible without you working in me. But Lord, could you speed up the completion of that a little bit more? Don't we want that? We, we want God to finish the thing he started. But there's, there's something in that. In fact, uh, if, if you want to get a sneak peek, uh, the Lord, he, he does tell us how he does that. Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but more in my absence, work out, our, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God's work that he's doing in you. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. God works in you for his, good, uh, for his work, for your pleasure, for his pleasure, really. But here's the thing. Back up to verse 12. It uses the, the O word, obey. There's some things that you got to do. So God begins the work and it's not like you can go sit on a hammock. Lay your arms behind your head. Say, all right, Lord, bring it on. I'm ready for it. That's not the way it happens. There's some things that God expects you to do. God does the work. He's going to complete it. But there are things that you have to do to participate in that work. And, and here's the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in you. And it's, and it's beautiful. He's turning stone dead people like you and me into living, loving replicas of Jesus Christ. I love what I love how uh, the gospel writer John articulates this different wording, but really the same idea. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I mean, those are beautiful words. God is doing a good work in you. He started the minute you came to faith in Jesus Christ. He's working on you every day by the Holy Spirit, and he's going to bring it to completion, and it's going to happen. But God gets to decide when that happens. And here's the beauty of God. He chooses us, Paul tells us in another letter, from the foundation of the world. He begins that work in us by the Holy Spirit. That's called sanctification. And by his sovereign initiative, but also his sovereign faithfulness, he sees that work through till the end. What's the end? I was on this flight. So I was a young major in the Army in 2003, and I was going from one unit to join another unit. It so happened that we had just begun the Iraq War or Operation Iraqi Freedom, and I was joining my unit. It was already, I mean, they were already in combat, fighting from Baghdad all the way up to Mosul. And so my unit uh, did all the in-processing stuff, they drove me from, from Fayetteville, North Carolina, all the way to Baltimore, Washington International. Uh, had to stay overnight in a hotel in Annapolis. Got uh, you know, all our stuff together. I'm with a whole bunch of other people. And, uh, and we take off. Actually, no, we didn't take off. Um, the, the flight had some, uh, some aircraft issues. And so 
they delayed our flight one, one more day. So we stayed overnight again in Annapolis, took off the next day. We flew to Bangor, Maine. Two hours worth of air, air, uh, aircraft issues. Bangor, Maine, just hanging on the aircraft. We flew to Frankfurt, Germany. They, uh, we got off the aircraft. Four hours of aircraft issues. Then we got back on. And then we flew to the island of Crete, middle of the Mediterranean. Uh, in Crete, we were stopping there um, just to change out pilots and, and crew. We got back on the aircraft. We took off. We climbed at 30,000 feet. And then it was like we were on a movie like you see in, 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 the, in the movie theater. Uh, the, the plane did a 30,000, uh, a 10,000 foot dive. Uh, the, the overhead bins opened up, people's stuff was falling out, people that weren't buckled into their seatbelt flew out of their seat and hit, the, hit the, the, the top of the plane. And then the worst thing that could ever happen in an aircraft happened the oxygen mask came down. It's like, oh, Lord Jesus, this is the end. This is the end. I really thought that was the end. And I was thinking to myself, I said, Lord, you know what? So I could handle if, 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 if my end were in combat. Like, I'm going to Iraq, and I know there's going to be some bad guys there, and I want to use my artillery to take them out. And if I had to be taken out there, all right, I, I see that. But God, you can't let my end be in an airplane. In, in an airplane going to war. All right, I tell that story. I mean, that's not our end. Here, here's our end. Our end is that day that God finishes his work in us. And here, here's what Paul says in the text. He says it's the day of Jesus Christ. That's the day when Jesus returns. I can say a whole lot about that. That's a theology, a, a doctrine about the obviously the return of Christ. But here's my exhortation to you. Believer, God is going to get you home. That's Paul's point. He was encouraging the church at Philippi with this. If, if you're in Christ, again, that, that union with Christ, your destination is certain. There may be a hard journey from point A to point you know, Z, the, the totality of your life. But when Jesus cracks the sky, you're going to see God complete that work that he's started in you. So here's a, here's a little bit of reflection. You know, oftentimes we think we're the ones that's holding on to God and Paul is giving us a different perspective here. He's not, you're not holding on to God because you can't grip him tight enough. God is gripping, he's holding on to you. I, I listen to gospel music. So if you're riding with me, um, I actually don't listen to a lot of secular music. I actually listen to Christian music. I'm a Christian that listens to Christian music. I'm not rebuking any of you. Listen to all the music you want. When you get in my car, I listen to Christian music. I actually listen to black gospel because I grew up on that. And so one of my favorite songs is like this thumping song, and it's called Hang On. It's by uh, Kiara Sheard, Kiki. And I mean, it's, I'm not going to recommend a song to you. If you want to like jam out in your car, get this song. But the words don't reflect what the Bible says about, about us and our relationship to God. So but let me give you a little taste of it. What you going to do when your back's against the wall? What you gonna do when it seems all hope is lost? Tell me what you gonna do when you need a little more grace. Mm, what you gonna do when you when this? What you gonna do when the when the something tests your faith? And then she gives this tagline: "Hold, hang on." You know, that's that's the song. It's it's like that's my jam. 
But what I really want Kiki to say right there is like, don't like, like not hang on because my hands aren't strong enough to hang on to God. I want her to say, Lord, hang on to me. If you could put that in the in the rhythm of the song. I mean, that that's what Paul is. That's what he's saying here. And this is this is his confidence that you aren't strong enough. There's not, not enough good character in you. There's not enough goodness. You don't, it's not your history. It's not your title. It's not all the ways that you're persevering that God gets you to the end. God is holding on to you. And Paul's confidence is that he who began a good work in you is going to complete it in the day of Christ. That's his promise at the church at Philippi. That's his promise to you as well. Paul concludes this intro with a, with a prayer, and it's a beautiful prayer. Um, and it's beautiful because he doesn't just tell them he's going to pray for them. He actually does pray for them. You know how sometimes somebody will give us, tell us something either on the phone or text and say, you know what, I'm going to pray for you. He doesn't do that because sometimes we, we say that and we forget to pray for people. He actually tells them, I'm going to pray for you, and he tells them how he prayed. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what's excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so this is the last um, idea of this section. Again, we come back to that theme of a pastor with the congregation that he not just likes, that he loves. He has a great affection for them, and it's coming across in his words. Because in the two verses ahead of this, he says in verse 7, you know, it's right for me to feel this way about you because uh, I hold you in my heart. It's like I, you're, you're like a part of you is in me, and God is not letting you go from, from the memory of you. I mean, you're bringing me joy by just thinking about you. And he says, more than that, You've been partakers of me, of the, of the grace of God. God's put the same, he's given you the same grace that he's given to me, and you've helped me, not just in the good times, but if, particularly when I've been in, you know, in, in stress and duress and, and imprisoned. And he's thankful for that, and he's articulating that in prayer. And so the first thing he says to them is, uh, he prays that they would grow in love. He doesn't tell them what love is. I, I guess he assumes they know what love is based upon prior teaching or maybe they, the other manuscripts they've read. He doesn't tell them who they should love. I mean, do we love God? Are we supposed to love other people, other Christians, other believers? I think he, you know, he just assumes that they know Jesus sets the bar here, the great, uh, great commandment, love God, love other people. I mean, that's what Jesus told us to do, love our neighbor. And then who is our neighbor? It's, it's whoever is in, is in proximity to you, whoever is close enough uh, in your reach that you would be able to meet their need. And so when he prays for them that they would grow in love, what he's really praying for is that they would, they would grow in their compassion. That they would, grow, they would see the world as it is and have a Jesus-like compassion for the stuff that sometimes we can be hard and harsh about. And then he prays, lastly, that they would grow in knowledge and discernment. And so if he's praying that they would have love, but more importantly, compassion, he's praying here that they would um, see situations clearly and realistically. Can you, I mean, doesn't that make sense? You got to, I mean, life is, you got a tough week. You got some decisions to make about home, about kids, about school. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. And he's praying very simply, knowledge and discernment. 
Lord, I don't just want to know what I'm supposed to do. I want to be able to do the right thing. That's what he's praying for them. And here's the outcome. Verse 10 and 11, that they would approve what's excellent. That simply means that they would understand what really matters. You know, sometimes as people, we have a whole host of good choices and we would pick whatever the best choice is that's going to optimize you know, my life. But sometimes the wisdom is don't just choose whatever is going to be most advantageous, most favorable, going to give you the most money, you know, put you in a higher position. Sometimes we should choose that thing, the thing that really matters. And for that, we need God's help. That's what he's praying for them. He's praying that they would be holy. That's what he means by pure and blameless. And this is not some spooky spiritual word. It means set apart. But mostly it, this is the, the tattoo that's on your forehead that's saying, I'm a Christian, that you're holy, that you're living a life set apart to God. You don't do that perfectly, but it's a life that you recognize God has called you to. And then lastly, he says, a life that's right with God, that is filled with the fruit of righteousness. And obviously, when we think about that righteousness, we should think justification, being right with God. This is not just a forensic righteousness here. This is positional righteousness. He's saying, I want you to be so close to Jesus and your relationship to him that it, that it bears fruit. One of Jesus' teachings was of a gardener, and this gardener paid, uh, uh, gave uh, just a particular attention to grooming his garden. And one day he wakes up, and it's like in full bloom. And he's about to praise himself for the manner that he's sown the seeds and nutrients uh, uh, applied nutrients and watered it, and then it dawns on him, I, I couldn't have done this. I, I, I might have done a couple of steps, but there's no way that I could produce the, the beautiful harvest, the fruit that I see before me. And that's what he's saying right here. He's like, there's some things that, that need to be wrought in you, that there's no manner of steps of, of doing this and not doing that that's going to bear it. You need Jesus' help. Jesus ha- your, in, your relationship to Jesus is what you need to bear the fruit that God wants you to have, a fruit, that, that, um, a fruit filled with righteousness. And lastly, he follows up by saying, and all this the praise and glory of God. That's his intro. How do, how do you do your intros to your letters? Uh, let me conclude with this thought. Um, Paul is delighting in this group of people, and I think the, the delight that he experiences is beyond anything we could really understand. Um, but here's the thing. He's not just delighting in people because they're do-gooders. I think he sees the influence of Jesus on them. And that's what we want to be said of us. If someone's writing a letter to us that knew us in this day, 10 years from now, they're writing a letter remi- you know, remembering and and. God giving them delight in the the memory of us. We want it to be said of us that the influence of Jesus on us brought us joy. And then we want them to thank thank the Lord for that. That's what Paul is doing here. And and I pray that he would do that for, for us throughout this letter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... This picture of Paul as a pastor, uniting, uh, uh, writing, and remembering people that he knows so intimately. Lord, I pray that you would bring us into relationships like that, that we would have true fellowship where we are loving and caring and sharing and giving, resourcing the, uh, not just um, 
programs and stuff, but really resourcing uh, the, the, the gospel going forward. And, uh, and so, uh, Lord, we, we thank you for the opportunity to, 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 to open up this letter and pray that it would be fruitful, that it would bear in us uh, the fruit of righteousness in the days ahead. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.